This is the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan-Nathan and Peter Gowers. Thanks to Ward Keller, the Territory Law Firm. Hello and welcome wherever you're listening from. This is the Territory Story Podcast. My name is Peter Gowers. On this episode of the podcast, we speak with former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd about a number of things to do with the Northern Territory and how they're going to affect things moving forward. To kick it off, though, Leon asks him exactly how he'd like to be addressed. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Kevin is infinitely more polite than some of the names I get called (laughs) in Australian politics and outside Australian politics. The best one I hear is just, hey, you. <laughs> right. Well, it's great to have you on the podcast, and thank you for coming on and uh, you know making yourself available to speak to us here on the Territory Story podcast, uh, particularly to the Territorians that uh, tune in. Yeah, I got a soft spot for the Territory. I've been, God knows how often, in Darwin over the years. I just really like the place. It's um, partly because I grew up in rural Queensland, and I. Uh, a Territorians be offended by this, but I but I see the worldviews as not dissimilar, uh, and um, and you know the crocs still move from far north Queensland into the north, so uh, so they're, they're basically the same breed. Uh, but it's a, it's a great part of Australia, and so radically different uh, from uh, Sydney and Melbourne. It's refreshing. Mm. It's just refreshing. <laughs> Well, we like to think so, but uh, we do have some uh, some some issues up here, and uh, I'm hoping that we can take the next little while to have it talk to you and get your views on some of this stuff. Uh, but particularly, we wanted to speak with you first about the media inquiry that you. Uh, agitated for. Uh, and I can say that I personally uh, got online and uh, put my name to the petition of, I think it was about half a million in the end, wasn't it? Yeah, half a million uh, got through to sign. It was a um, it was uh, an electronic petition uh, run by the Australian Parliament. It crashed on multiple occasions in the first week. I suspect that we really had several hundred thousand more people who wanted to sign who couldn't sign. Many people who signed literally spent days trying to sign. So, um, so I think minimum half a million, um, closer to I would think three quarters of a million, based on um, the problems in the first week from a uh, Parliament House petition website, which had never seen anything <laughs> like it in its life, mm-hmm. and just had a massive case of digital infarct um, as it um, as it just collapsed. Yeah. Right. So um, I noticed today, as I was doing a little bit of research for this, um, the report is is to be presented to the Senate uh, today, I believe. Is that right, according to the website? No, no, no. The, uh, they've sought an extension to the Senate inquiry, uh, basically to explain the sequence to your um, people watching or listening to this podcast. Uh, the petition was to establish a uh, Royal Commission into media diversity in Australia. Because we had such a huge response, the Senate then um, established a uh, Senate inquiry into the subject, and the Senate inquiry uh, has extended its reporting date beyond the initial date, and so it's still taking evidence and it will still take further evidence. I don't think it will report much before August, actually. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and what what is it looking at right now, and, and where do you think it will end up? Well, Senate inquiry um, is to look at uh, the challenges to media diversity. So we will look, obviously, at the uh, monopoly in print, which is owned by Murdoch. They will also look at uh, the future of the electronic platforms, television, radio, but also what's emerging with new digital platforms. 
And it's not simply those who own the platforms like um, Google and Facebook. It's those who are making, as it were, most effective use of those platforms as well. And your listeners uh, may be interested to know that um, uh, literally in the last few weeks, uh, News Corporation became the biggest single presence of the Australian media companies uh, on their YouTube channel, bigger than the ABC, bigger than 9, 7, 10. Um, and so all that crap you see on Sky After Dark, um, you know, conspiracy theories about conspiracy theories, uh, what happens is it gets spliced and diced into the content uh, run by uh, the uh, News Corporation uh, YouTube channel, and it's growing rapidly. And as someone who's lived in America for the last five or six years, let me tell you, that's precisely the formula they use with Fox mm-hmm. uh, to grow its base beyond the initial, as it were, cable subscriber base out through to the platforms, social media platforms. And I believe to be one of the big contributing forces to the effective breakdown of American, as it were, the, of the American civil polity and the fragmentation of people into warring tribes um, and the consequence we saw in the final outcome in the storming of the capital. So fracturing the voter base and turning it into a bunch of warring tribes as opposed to people who have passionate but reasoned differences is part of the Murdoch playbook. We've seen it at work in the United States and we're seeing it unfold here in Australia. I do not want to see that happen to our country. (laughs) Kevin, is that numbers uh, by viewing audience or numbers by watch hours? Uh, By viewing audience. I'm advised. My staff track this. Um, And they just passed the ABC uh, about uh, two or three weeks ago. Wow, that's uh, significant. It's uh, worthwhile watching its growth potential. So when we think, oh, that's just crazy sky after dark stuff, who watches that? 6,000 people, uh, all of whom uh, belong to, you know, um, shall we say, uh, curious institutions. Um, In fact, um, that's just the icing on the cake. The cake is the transmission of all that content, diced and sliced, uh, into um, the uh, Murdoch um, YouTube channel. And that's where it's having an effect. Uh, one of the reasons, quite apart from their control of the print monopoly, that I've engaged in this um, uh, in this campaign. Hmm. And so, in terms of the territory, I mean, up here we have really two options. We've got uh, the NT News, which is a Murdoch paper, uh, and and we've got the ABC, which is obviously not print. Uh, how, how do you see that, that monopoly affecting a place like this? Well, the smaller the gathering of people, uh, the harder it is to deal with the monopoly question. And so uh, population of Darwin now is how many? Guys, tell me. Uh, 120,000, give or take. Yeah. Okay. So That's you, Darwin. Yeah, sure. So if you go up and down the, uh, the Queensland coast and you look at concentrations of, um, of population, um, communities like Cairns, like Townsville, um, uh, you know, Darwin is in sort of the, the broad remit of those cities in terms of its population centre. And both of those um, centres also have a local Murdoch monopoly paper. So um, if you get to metro areas like Brisbane, we should have a much greater diversity of newspapers. 
except that, um, frankly, no one's prepared to take on the Murdoch beast and he killed the previous competition completely um, way back when in the 80s. Um, and then subsequently when he was allowed by the ACCC to purchase the provincial newspapers and network APN, he uh, took over and controlled and then killed the rest of the competition. So the key question, therefore, is in smaller centres, no disrespect to Darwin, but, you know, Townsville, Cairns, Darwin, those sort of cities, how can you achieve media diversity? Obviously, other platforms. Um, that's why um, Auntie, the ABC, is so important. Um, but secondly, um, I think there is a real um, opportunity now for what we describe as public interest journalism. And public interest journalism uh, should be, in fact, the enterprise which is funded by a tax on the new digital mega companies, uh, uh, Google and Facebook. Instead, what's Morrison done? He's taken the looming threat of a, of a new monopoly by the, um, uh, by the platform providers, Google and Facebook, um, through legislative um, uh, force uh, and regulatory force, uh, forced them to negotiate with the mainstream so-called media providers like Murdoch and pay them money. Um, so Murdoch uh, is now paid money uh, by Google and Facebook for any of Murdoch's crap, uh, <laughs> which is taken up uh, online uh, under the guise of being uh, the reproduction of their news content and news value. Um, so, in other words, instead of using this opportunity, given the intrusion uh, and size and market distorting impact of Google and Facebook to levy an across the board, as it were, tax or a license fee, if you like, and then use that to fund what I describe as a national fund for public interest journalism. And for that then to be able to be drawn upon by local community newspapers, wherever they happen to be across uh, the country, that I believe is part of the answer for local communities to have a diversity of, uh, frankly, local news. That'll raise the question, of course, or who would decide on how this is allocated. Well, um, what's remarkable is that Frydenberg, the treasurer, now gets to decide um, uh, who constitutes a mainstream media organisation in order to receive payments uh, from the new bucket of cash delivered by Facebook and Google. So don't give me that bullshit from the Murdoch operation saying this is somehow impure. Um, uh, I would think off the top of my head if you had the equivalent of an independent parliamentary commission, a bit like the Auditor General, staffed by independent professionals, um, supervised by a parliamentary standing committee which was um, uh, balanced in its competition between left and right, um, then uh, it then, uh, as it were, executed a grants-based process uh, to uh, those who applied from local community uh, print operations because the rationale here is to preserve print. Um, and to have um, and to expand print where we currently have a print monopoly. Well, that is a really good segue to my next question, because you mentioned Josh Frydenberg and uh, you know giving him the power to determine uh, what media is is regarded as being mainstream. We've got a problem here in the territory right now with a media organisation known as the Anti Independent Newspaper, and I believe I watched a little bit of uh, um, your. Um, uh, performance in the uh, Senate inquiry, and I think Senator McMahon was trying to ask you this question, but she fumbled it, in my view. But 
Because I wasn't quite sure what the DSM was about. But the simple question, simple there, question. There, there were um, other dear senators, uh, like the bloke from uh, Queensland, who I couldn't follow what he was on about either. But, right. But <laughs> so, uh, was, the senator for the NT assumed I had prior knowledge of this beastie, but I didn't. Right. And that's what I thought. But, you know, the, the simple question is, we have a, a newspaper here called the NT Independent Online, which uh, started up about a year ago. Uh, but, uh, you know, and we have a Labor government here locally in the Territory, and that government has taken it upon itself to deem this particular organisation unworthy uh, of, of attending government press conferences to report on what the government is doing. Uh, and despite an enormous amount of uh, backlash, including the Senate, the Australian Senate, that passed a motion unanimously condemning this, uh, the, the NT government has stuck to its guns over it, which flies in the face, in my view, over exactly what you're talking about right now. Yeah, well, I don't know the particularities of what uh, is going on on the ground there. I would have thought, and this is um, beyond my pay grade, that when you convene a press conference, it should be uh, for, uh, as it were, accredited journalists. Um, and the process of accreditation should lie with the professional body whatever that is. And if you are an accredited journalist, uh, what used to be the Australian Journalists Association, AJA, I presume is now wrapped up also now in the Media Arts and Entertainment Alliance, but, you know, I'll, I'll let you guys advise me further on that. But as long as they are a properly accredited journalist, irrespective of whether you hate their guts or not, um, then, uh, they, um, then using their accreditation... Uh, part of our checks and balances of democracy uh, is therefore to uh, allow them to participate in, uh, in open press conferences. Um, for example, when I um, was at the National Press Club recently, I was uh, asked questions by the um, journalist from News Corporation. I think his name was Brown, I think, um, young fellow. And uh, so I said normally I you know, don't answer questions from political parties um, because News Corporation is simply a political party. <laughs> but because you're here, International Post Club, ask away. But let's not pretend you're here with open, an open and professional mind. You're just here to do a job. And, and by that, I mean do a job on me. But totally <laughs> so you can do that, um, but you shouldn't shut the door on them being, um, as it were, uh, one of the um, one of those who um, participates in a press conference. So what's the what's the uh, the keeper of the gate there? The keeper of the gate is the accreditation of um, of journalists, and so long as the professional accreditation body accepts the fact that that person's a journalist, then well and good. Right. Well, we'll have to take that with Chris Walsh because I'm not sure whether he is uh, a member of any organisation, but he's certainly a very well respected journalist. Uh, and, yeah, and, sure. and from both so sides I, I don't know the guy. I don't know the paper. I don't even know the local issues on this question, but. It's a principle in a democracy, just as mm. Murdoch has subverted the democracy by the use and abuse of his monopoly powers, so too should those of us in the, um, and, and that should be named, is why I'm naming it, with events at the end of the day, the Murdoch media is just a protection rack, racket for the Liberal National Parties around Australia. That's how they operate. They're no longer a credible news organisation, but they have accredited journalists. So mm. anyone who's accredited journalist, uh, they should be able to come along. And then you can uh, rip their carotid artery out if you want to. It was the <laughs> sort of politician question. So. Well, the NT Independent does have uh, NT government uh, accreditation, so that's the other frustration. 
Yeah, it's um, it's a little strange. Uh, yeah. So, um, but I don't, um, as I said. Sure. Uh, there's probably a backstory within a backstory within a backstory here, which I have no familiarity. There is. On the question of the principle, as long as they're an accredited journalist and you hold a press conference, an accredited journalist uh, should be able to participate. Mm. Okay. Even well, if they're, even well, they're masquerading um, as, uh, as a journalist, <laughs> in reality, they're representatives of the political movement. Yeah, and that's right. what Murdoch is. Well, I can tell you Chris Walsh wrote a book called Crots in the Cabinet about the CLP government, so he doesn't have any particular polit- political uh, affiliation one way or the other, mm. uh, which is remarkable. But look you, uh, you mean You mean there weren't crocs in the Cabinet? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, look, uh, on, on the subject of, of, of media and, and, of course, ABC, some would say, would be, uh, you know, a branch of the, of the Labor Party. I, I particularly subscribe to that view. but uh, that's, that's just total bullshit. <laughs> that's just a conservative, that's a conservative <laughs> meme. I have lodged probably more legal actions against the ABC in my career than I have against Murdoch. Um, so um, over questions of uh, defamation, over questions of... Um, Accuracy over questions of misreporting, of bias. Um, so, I mean, let's, let's, you know, that's a very convenient conservative meme to justify the conservatives pulling the plug on ABC funding and politically stacking the board of the ABC. Let's just call the spade a spade in. Yeah. Look, I'm, I'm cognizant of time, so I just want to uh, ask you the next question of the next set of questions, uh, and they relate to um, the, the territory, not the Darwin in particular. The build-up of defence here, our obviously our uh, strong connection with the US and and the um, the joint um, defence facilities that are being um, constructed. Given what's going on in China right now, given what's going on with Australia's relationship with China, of course, in relation to the the uh, our exports, uh, you know, the ramping up of of, of Chinese um, you know commentary on on the way we are doing things. Where do you see all of this ending up? I mean, you're, you're a member. You are now, as I understand, the CEO of the Asia Institute. Um, you obviously have a tremendous background in foreign policy in China. Where do you see us sitting in all of this in the territory? Uh, we are at a geopolitical inflection point between the United States and China. That's what we need to understand. And whatever we're going through in Australia at the moment, um, the uh, the bottom line is um, it is uh, reflected um, across uh, all of America's other friends, partners and allies in Asia and increasingly in Europe as well. Um, so we're not, um, as it were, uh, Robinson Crusoe here. There's a reason for that. The balance of power between China and the United States is shifting rapidly in economic, technological and in military terms. Um, China is still behind, but in each of those categories, we're not quite sure for how much longer. Secondly, under the leadership of Xi Jinping, China has become much more assertive in the prosecution of its national interests, which we see through foreign policy uh, instruments at work. So that's the reality. That's what's actually unfolding around us. Uh, the problem with Australia is often we do think we're Robinson Crusoe and all these problems are unique to us. Well, that's just bullshit as well. Second point is, in the response to that, it should be, from an Australian government point of view, it should be multi-layered. It should be um, uh, ensuring that our bilateral diplomacy in Beijing is in working order. At present, it's not. Um, secondly, 
Now, that our foreign policy is working in intimate partnership with our friends and partners in the rest of Asia, um, and that is in a variable state of repair. Uh, and when I look at, for example, the Australian relationship with the Pacific Island countries, it's actually in disrepair. Then, of course, there's a third element to that, which is our national security policy and the deployment of our defence assets. And that's where not just uh, Darwin is important, but frankly, um, um, uh, far north Queensland is important as well, uh, as well as uh, Western Australia for different reasons. Indian Ocean, Southeast Asia, Southwest Pacific. Uh, and they are all full within Australia's, what we used to term, area, Australia's uh, area of direct military uh, importance, ADMI, mm-hmm. used to term we use. So for the defence deployments in the north, that part of that configuration, uh, and to be able to, as it were, exercise and partner with our long-standing treaty ally of the United States is equally important. So that's why, you know, when we're in government, uh, we actually negotiated, myself as Prime Minister, then Julia Gillard, myself as Foreign Minister, when Gillard was PM, um, to um, execute the pivot um, uh, by the United States uh, to Asia, at least that part of it which dealt with uh, the greater U.S. Uh, marine deployment in Darwin, um, but also the progressive, as it were, uh, expansion of the ADF presence uh, in the territory in northern Australia overall, uh, in all categories of the services, not just um, not just um, army. Mm. Do you think? I mean, we're looking uh, next year at the 80th anniversary of the bombing of Darwin. Um, do you think uh, territorians, particularly here in Darwin, should be, you know? growing in concern about the way things are going? Well, the bottom line is uh, China in its history um, since 1949 and its imperial history for 2,000 years before that has exhibited zero interest in an overseas territorial empire, zero interest. China's, um, as it were, territorial ambitions have been directly linked to, as it were, its immediate continental neighbouring states. Hence why during the dynasty between, you know, the 1640s to 1911, you saw China, the Han Chinese court of the Qing, uh, move to uh, occupy Tibet, move to occupy Xinjiang, uh, and uh, were in permanent border wars with the Vietnamese. Um, and, of course, a rolling territorial dispute with the Koreans over Korea uh, and with uh, the Japanese over Korea. And so, and to, and the Qing themselves, of course, had previously invaded China from Manchuria. But the core territorial interests were, let's call it the Han center of the, the Chinese uh, uh, empire, uh, which, if you took the current map of China, is about the uh, inner uh, two thirds of the map that you see, then expanded to these other uh, peripheral areas over the last 300 years or so. But no net territorial ambition since uh, addition since forty nine, um, and frankly, uh, when China seeks to expand its foreign policy and security policy perimeter, its principal interest is Taiwan. Its principal interest following that of the South China Sea and the East China Sea. Its principal interest following that of the Sino-Indian border, and beyond that is frankly wider foreign policy and economic spheres of influence, and that's where it's important for Australia, if it's serious about its long-term national future, to be able to exercise its own influence in Southeast Asia and Southwest Pacific across the board, of which defence is a component. 
Mm. Kevin, specifically looking at the last 12 months, um, do you envisage what the potential fallout could be, you know, with Australia and China, you know, Australia specifically, obviously, but from China as a result of the feud caused by the Australian government demanding an inquiry into the origins of COVID-19? Well, plainly there's a trade, um, I wouldn't say war underway at present, but there is a trade dispute. Um, and as a, a cons- and that is because China has imposed punitive trade measures on Australia um, uh, as retaliation against various foreign policy actions by Australia, of which the unilateral call for independent inquiry into the origins of COVID-19 is one. Mm. But if you look at all the surrounding statements um, from the Chinese about why they've done what they've done, that's one of them, but there are a bunch of others as well. So... How do we um, look ahead to this? Um, The open question in my mind is the extent to which the United States, our treaty ally, will use its own leverage on behalf of Australia uh, to uh, achieve a strategic renormalisation in US-China relations on the one hand, but on the condition that China normalises its relationship with its major allies at the same time. Early signs were at the Anchorage meeting the other day between the Secretary of State and National Security Advisor of the United States and their Chinese equivalents. So that's what the Americans are seeking to do. But when I say open question is we still do not know what the Chinese response will be. Mm-hmm. Finally, the equation is, um, as I said in my uh, earlier remarks, the bottom line is uh, China is expanding its influence. Um, China is now more assertive and China is more powerful. And therefore, all countries, including Australia, are feeling that and experiencing that. Some are, as it were, succumbing, others are resisting, and some more effectively than others. So that's one part of the equation. But for Australia, the other part of the equation is to have a government in Canberra which actually understands um, how to conduct this relationship in all of its complexity. And that doesn't mean just shooting your mouth off against the Chinese every second day and believe that equals a national China strategy or a foreign policy strategy or a national security strategy. It doesn't. It basically caters to the Liberal National Party political base saying we're hairy-chested because we're taking <laughs> the Chinese on. Mm. Now, that's bullshit again. It doesn't actually materially advance the Australian core national interest. So when I'm asked often about how to handle this relationship with China, I fully accept and, um, and recognise but the external factors driven by China itself are huge and they are affecting all countries. However, when I look at Japan, which has a very difficult relationship with China, the history, a continued territorial dispute over Senkoku and the East China Sea, um, but still uh, China is Japan's largest market. It's also highly proximate in terms of uh, geography. Measure all that against Australia. But the Japanese relationship understands the difference between pursuing an operational strategy and pushing back against, as it were, the assertion of Chinese influence uh, and power, while not engaging in declaratory bullshit uh, every second Tuesday because the polling search is in from text from Crosby, Texas, saying this is a good thing to do. This will mm-hmm. make you hairy chested in the electorate or within the Liberal Party branches. It may or may not, uh, but let me tell you, it's a fundamental, fundamentally unhelpful in prosecuting the sort of sophisticated national security strategy and foreign policy that I've seen from other countries in similar positions like Japan. Mm. What role do you think the Darwin Port plays in China's plans? 
Um, I'm not seeking to evade this, but I do have to go in a minute the, um, <laughs> because it's just gone six. Um, talking about uh, Conservative Party hairy chestedness, the uh, <laughs> the uh, the um, uh, the rank hypocrisy of anyone from the Liberal and National Party attacking the Labor Party uh, for being quote soft on China uh, is underlined by the Port of Darwin fiasco, uh, whereby. Uh, you had Scott Morrison, currently the Prime Minister, then, as I understand it, as Treasurer, approving a, uh, a uh, foreign uh, investment in the port of Darwin, which ends up with the port on a 99-year lease uh, through a Chinese entity. Now, go figure. We're the government, who, who uh, the Labor government, who engineered the American pivot uh, to uh, Asia insofar as it affected Australia. Uh, we negotiated the extra basing of American Marines in the Northern Territory. They come in through the port of Darwin. And what do the Liberals, those fierce critics of the China then do? They bloody well lease the port of Darwin to the Chinese. For God's <laughs> sake, give us a break. So I'll, I'll leave it there if that's okay. Thank you. Thank you very much for your time. All, All the right. best. Thanks, Kevin. See you, mate. Bye. Well, uh, okay, mate. So we just finished the, uh, the interview with Kevin Rudd and i got to give you credit, mate. We, we ran over time. The way he was talking, I thought he was going to drop the guillotine and fire yeah. exactly at half, on half an hour, but he didn't. No, he did well. I, I got the sense that we were never going to get 45, but I thought we might be able to sneak a couple of extra minutes here with just a short question or two. Yeah. So the, the last set of questions uh, that we had for him just for the audience is, the, is that we were going to talk to him about the in, Indigenous issues here and the crime in Alice Springs and all that sort of stuff and the mm. negative publicity, but but we, we clearly didn't have time for that. Um, you know, we might have, have, have to have another go at some stage. But, yeah. Uh, but that, I thought we had a pretty good run with Kevin. What did you think? Yeah, yeah no, I thought um, what I specifically liked was the detail in his answers. Of course. Um, he's a smart guy, you know. Like I know, I know on b- both sides of politics, there's for and against. I get that, you know. Mm. It's it's a team sport, mm. but um, you can also come on these podcasts and just give sort of cursory answers and not really give much away. But he, he's yeah, he's a. I would describe him as an intellectual, mm. and he gives you those types of answers. He gives you good detail and gives you food for thought. But so is Turnbull. Yeah, that's right. And I was only thinking about that earlier today, thinking the interesting thing for us was within a very short space of time, Malcolm Turnbull said, look, I could have been either side of politics. So if we had an unlimited time, I probably would have asked uh, Kevin Rudd at some point what his thoughts were and, you know, could he have seen him on the left side of politics because he – he claims to be open to both sides. I doubt it. I mean, look, the way he was just carrying on about the, the Liberal Party hypocrisy, you know, yeah. not just about China but about, yeah. you know, uh, the media as well. Yeah. I just I, think he's got a he's got a visceral hatred for the yeah. Liberal Party. He seems to. The, the interesting thing for me was when he first started talking about other people, he only uses their surnames. And if I'm doing that, it's because I don't like them, but he does that with everyone. So, you know, it's just his way of being. Yeah, yeah. But interesting, his, uh, his comments on the media, what did, you, what, what did you glean from that? 
So I caught his interview, uh, I think it was with the ABC, um, prior to this inquiry starting. And obviously being in the digital marketing space, you know, it could have directly affected my life with things, you know, such as Google and Facebook having to undergo those changes that they did. Um, so yeah, look, clearly, and, and I'm not saying he's wrong, but clearly when you're calling, uh, the Murdoch media, a political arm of you know, <laughs> political wing of right wing politics. Well, you know, you're sort of stating for the record what you think, um, but I don't necessarily think he's wrong about that either. Because you know, we are in a situation, and the Northern Territory is a classic example of that, where we just don't have diversity. And we, when you we, try to have diversity, his own party won't let you have it. Yeah, yeah well, that's true. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. So, yeah, I, I, look, I, it, what he said today was just a shortened version of shortened version of what I saw him say on the ABC. Um, clearly, it has to change, but it, it looks like political parties all around the world, particularly in, you know, Western countries, they're happy to kowtow to Murdoch and, and his ways. So I don't know how that's going to change. Mm-hmm. Well, he was uh, pretty clear about the anti-independent and what he thinks uh, should, should happen. Yeah. I can't recall. We'll have to talk to Chris uh, when we do next about his accreditation. I, I'm pretty sure I had a chat to him about it once and he... I think he indicated to me that he wasn't a member of any of these journalist associations. But, but I'm doesn't... sure he told us on the podcast, and, and it was with great sort of almost sarcasm, that the anti-independent, and I guess it's journalists individually, were given anti-government accreditation, right. but they were right. never handed it. They were said, yeah, you're accredited, but you yeah. can't have the accreditations, therefore you can't attend. Okay, we'll have to follow that one up with him. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, look, uh, great uh, to hear Rudd actually endorse, uh, you know, what is everybody else's view in the world yeah. <laughs> happened here, yeah. um, except for uh, one Michael Gunner and yeah, and and, the, and uh, he gave no one the order, so who knows? It could be like the yeah. Victorian government; no one knows nothing about nothing. Right, right, right. But. Uh, Look, on China, you, uh, you asked some questions about the port, which I mm. think he, uh, he sort of answered in a, in a very political way. Yeah. Yeah, probably if given more time, he would, he would have got more in-depth into it. But, look, the point's not lost, is it, that, uh, you know, that, that the Labor government made changes and did certain things uh, to make things happen for the US and the military who do spend their time in, in the Northern Territory and then, uh, you know, their opposition or the the uh, the Liberal government uh, under the CLP in the Territory, of course, uh, somehow leased the port to the very foe that they were trying to guard against, would you put it that way? I don't know, mate, but I, I do know that uh, there are plenty of people in uh, in politics that think that there's nothing wrong with, with what happened there. Right. I, I, I'm not sure what Keating's view would be, but he certainly has been on the record berating uh, all of us at one point or another about being uh, anti-Chinese and, and all that sort of stuff. So, mm. yeah, who, who knows? Well, I think you summed up Keating's best when you once told us that uh, he just likes to fly straight over Darwin. 
Well, he has. He's on the record as saying the best way to see Darwin is at 40,000 feet in a plane on the way to Paris. You know, and when I look at some of the debates where he uh, absolutely goes to town on John Hewson and, and, and others, yeah, I think to myself, why wasn't there anyone? Could, Costello was the only one that ever really got, got close, if at all. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, just expose the hypocrisy of Keating, you know, being for the, the small guy and the working class guy, but, uh, you know, having his Italian suits and his antique clocks and his, uh, you know, uh, and his cl clear disdain for Darwin. <laughs> well, whenever I think of stories like that, I, I go back to my time in the Middle East and I think of the strict rules. Yeah, they're not strict as in, like, you know, Westerners can't live happily and freely there. They absolutely can. But there are strict rules over and above what we expect here at home uh, and, you know, what we're used to, certainly freedoms with democracy and things like that. And obviously, you know, there's, there's certain restrictions around certain things. But the infamous villa parties that we used to hear about from the members of the royal family of Dubai and Abu Dhabi, etc. It was very much a case of do as I say, not as I do. And <laughs> I think I think old Paul may have fit under that category as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was uh, well, it was good. Well, I'm glad we managed to get another PM on the uh, podcast. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Uh, we'll see if we can get a sitting PM. Oh. <laughs> Answer a few <laughs> questions. <laughs> uh, I didn't say which. I, I, I like the. Um, what do you mean, which? How many sitting? No, I didn't say are? which PM. Which sitting PM? Could be a future one. Oh, right. Okay, <laughs> I don't understand that. Um, uh, I I think it'd be great to have uh, you know someone like Keating on board. Anyway, mm. we'll we'll we'll, uh, we'll see. We'll see. Okay, All right, uh, mate. Well, look, uh, good to have you there, and uh, great to be able to get some content that, that perhaps is a little bit more relevant to the territory in relation to these issues. Absolutely. Hope you all enjoyed it. That was Kevin Rudd on the Territory Story Podcast. We'll catch you again next time. You've been listening to the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan Nathan and Peter Gowers. For more episodes, search Territory Story Podcast on all leading podcasting platforms or go to territorystory.com. The Territory Story Podcast. Thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency.